The Bible tells us in Genesis 2 and verse 7 that the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So who decides when life begins? God or government? The scripture canon or the Supreme Court? Our sovereign maker or a selfish mob? An infinite God or an intellectual genius? I think it's time to stop the murders of the unborn. It's time to honor the sanctity of life. And I believe there are three important issues with regard to this matter of life and the sanctity and sacredness of it. We discover here in Psalm 139 that our life is a fashioned life. We read it in verse 15, the drama club repeated it again, but he says, my substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes, God's eyes, did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Before I had eyes in the sockets of my skull, God already knew and had written in a book what color my eyes were going to be. God knew how tall I would become. He knew the color of my hair. God knew everything about me before there was any of it. He fashioned my life. Life is a gift from God. Little children are an heritage of the Lord. The Bible says in Ruth 4 and verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went in unto her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. The Lord gave her conception. Jeremiah said, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest out of the womb, I sanctified thee. You see, God knew about you before you knew about you. God knew about you before your parents knew about you. God knew about you before the doctors knew about you. For with thee, the psalmist said, is the fountain of life. It is a fashioned life. But we have come today to believe a fabricated lie. When does life begin? I think sometimes we want to individually and selfishly decide when life begins. We have many opinions about when life starts. Conception, sometime in that first trimester, sometime in the second trimester, maybe the third trimester, maybe it doesn't begin until birth. When does life begin? I find it really interesting how inconsistent the world is when it comes to what they preach and teach. If you're in my ethics class, you know that one of the things we constantly hammer in that class is consistency in what we believe, and that we're able to articulate consistently those beliefs. And I find the world to be very inconsistent. In fact, I find them to be downright hypocritical. The world today talks a lot about climate change. We hear that all the time, climate change. And climate change is supposedly based on 
science, all of the data, all of the scientific research, all these things that are being discovered about climate change, it's all based on science. Well, why don't we then take science and apply it to when life begins? In other words, if we're going to use science to talk about climate change and the world ending in 12 years and the need of $100 trillion to correct the problem in America that's causing climate change, and we're going to use science to back up all of those things, why don't we use science then to back up what we believe about when life begins? MSNBC reporter Erin Carmen says... Conception and life are not scientific terms. Well, the facts prove otherwise. The American Heritage Science Dictionary defines conception as the formation of a zygote resulting from the union of a sperm and an egg cell. It's called fertilization. A zygote, Z-Y-G-O-T-E, a zygote is the first stage of the human embryo. Now that same dictionary, the American Heritage Science Dictionary, defines life this way, the form of existence that organisms like animals and plants have and that inorganic objects or organic dead bodies lack. Animate existence, characterized by growth, reproduction, metabolism, and response to stimuli. In other words, life has four components. It has growth, it has reproduction, it has metabolism, it has response to stimuli, something that an inorganic object does not have, nor does a dead body have. Now, science tells us that human zygotes, remember that's the first stage of the human embryo, formed when the sperm and the egg combine, that zygote, the human zygote, has all four of those empirical attributes of life. It has growth. In the book Essentials of Human Development, A Lifespan View, it says, and I quote, the zygote grows rapidly through cell division. Secondly, it has reproduction. Per Human Sexuality and Encyclopedia, it says, and I quote, zygotes sometimes form identical twins, which is an act of asexual reproduction. Third, it has metabolism. The medical textbook, Human Gametes and Pre-Implementation Embryos Assessment and Diagnosis states, and I quote, at the zygote stage, the human embryo metabolizes carbolixic acids, pyruvate and lactate, and its preferred energy substances. Fourth, it has response to stimuli. According to Collins' English Dictionary, it defines stimulus as any drug, agent, electrical impulse, or other factor able to cause a response in an organism. Experiments show that zygotes are responsive to all such factors. Life in the zygote. 
the first stage of embryonic life, immediately upon the sperm and the egg combining. All four aspects of the definition scientifically of life are present. A 2005 paper in the journal called Human Reproduction Update notes that a compound called platelet activating factor acts upon the zygote by stimulating metabolism, cell cycle progression, and viability. The science of embryology has proven that the genetic composition of humans is formed during fertilization, and as the textbook Molecular Biology states, and I quote, this genetic material is the very basis of life. The textbook, Before We Are Born, Essentials of Embryology and Birth Defects, states, and I quote, the zygote and early embryo are living human organisms. Now, during the Clinton administration, this debate first surfaced over partial birth abortions. The ACOG, which stands for the American College of uh, Obstetricians and Gynecologists, stated, I quote, a select panel convened by ACOG could identify no circumstances under which a partial birth abortion would be the only option to save the life or preserve the health of the mother. But instead of releasing this information to the public, a memo was sent to President Clinton and it said, confidential, not final, do not copy, do not distribute. Now this document came to the attention of a, a White House lawyer and policy advisor named Elena Kagan, who later became President Obama's appointment to the Supreme Court. She was displeased by the ACOG's findings and wrote a memo warning its release would be a disaster. She then edited the ACOG statement by adding partial birth abortions may be the best and most appropriate procedure in a particular case to save the life or preserve the health of a woman. Young people, that is not science. That is politics over science. The justification of abortion, the justification of abortifacients, which the drama club explained, is sold today as a contraceptive. You can go to Walgreens and buy RU-47, take it immediately after sex, and that abortifacient is just exactly what it says it is, but it's sold as a contraceptive to prevent conception, but in reality kills that zygote immediately after it's formed. And those abortifacients are estimated to be taking the lives of over 610 million babies since their introduction. This is a fabricated lie. Now what do we do about it? What's our response? We can get mad. 
We can get upset. Easy to preach this kind of stuff in college chapel at a Baptist college. What do we do? Well, I think we need to love life. And I think our love needs to be a fervent love. Putting our love next to the facts of life and the fabricated lie taught by our culture, we need as a generation coming on the scene as college students a fervent love. God loves life. He loves it so much he created life to be enjoyed eternally. God so loved the world. I came uh, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the bread of life. He is the resurrection and the life. And how we need to protect life and publish life and pray for life. Many of you know the name John R. Rice. Dr. Rice was an evangelist. But Dr. Rice was perhaps a little more than an evangelist in the sense of his burden. He, of course, began the Sword of the Lord newspaper back in the 1930s. He launched the Sword of the Lord conferences at Winona Lake, Indiana, back about that same time. He began to hold conferences on revival and soul winning. But one of Dr. Rice's passions underneath the passion for revival and people being saved was the family and the home. Dr. Rice had six daughters that he loved dearly and was a believer in the family and, and what God designed in the family. And he would often find a, 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 an opportunity in his revivals or conferences to preach upon the home. It was not uncommon for Dr. Rice to spend a good portion of his sermons talking about the importance of being the right kind of husband and right kind of wife and right kind of parents and right kind of children. And the home was just a passion. And as a result of that, he started some ladies' conferences. He was burdened that women would have a time where they could come together. There were conferences for pastors, there were conferences for men, but there weren't a lot of conferences just for women in those days. And Dr. Rice had a passion to bring some ladies together and have his wife and other uh, pastors' wives and so on challenge them and speak to them about the importance of the home and the importance of their role in that home. And as Dr. Rice would conduct these ladies' conferences, he would always assign himself to speak as well. It was his conference, and so he would allow himself to preach, usually the opening message in those conferences. One such conference took place right here in Los Angeles many years ago. The conference opened that night with a large group of ladies in attendance, and Dr. Rice, as was his passion and as his routine normally was, he preached that opening service. He preached about being the right kind of wife and the right kind of mother, and he unloaded his heart that night as he always did, but that night he sensed something as he preached that he had never sensed before. As he was preaching that night about being a good wife and a good mother, it dawned on him that perhaps there were people in the audience that wanted to be what he was preaching about, but for some reason, God had not allowed it. 
He got particularly burdened as he preached about women that perhaps were in the audience that night that would gladly be a mom. But God had not allowed them to have a child. And it just, it sort of worked in his heart like it never before. And so when he closed the sermon, he did something he had never done. He told the ladies what he had sensed while he preached. And he said, I'm burdened that there may be a lady or two or more in this audience that you may agree with everything I've said tonight and you would love to be a mom, but God has not allowed you to have a child or adopt a child. And if that's the case, I'd like to meet you by the piano after the service and have a word of prayer for you. He closed the service with prayer. And a little bit to his surprise, 12 ladies made their way to the piano. A 13th lady sat about halfway back, sitting next to a good friend and mentor, a lady by the name of Mrs. Anderson. Her name was Debbie. She and her husband were not able to have children. They had prayed and asked the Lord for a family. But at that point, they'd been told that it would not happen. And Mrs. Anderson said to young Debbie, she said, Debbie, aren't you going to go up there? And Debbie looked at her friend and mentor and said, well, no, I don't think so. I mean, the doctors have said. And Mrs. Anderson lovingly said, well, would it, I know, but would it hurt for the man of God to pray for you? And so Debbie reluctantly joined the other 12. And Dr. Rice was true to his word, and he met those ladies there and asked each of them their name and the name of their husband. And then individually, he stood before each of them and prayed that God would allow them to be a godly mother and to raise a family for the Lord. A few months later, Debbie was pregnant. And a son was born. And not too many years later, a daughter. And then another daughter. And God blessed this family with life, perhaps due in part to the faith and the prayers of Dr. John R. Rice. Well, many years passed, and Debbie was now working in full-time ministry. She was a secretary and on the phone a great deal, and one day a, a pastor called from the Phoenix area of Arizona to the church where Debbie worked, and as she was talking with him, she thought he wanted to talk to someone else, but indeed he was calling for her. And he said, Debbie, I, I wanted to ask you a favor. He said, we, we have a ladies group in our church that goes up into the mountains and they have a retreat every spring. And uh, we usually bring in an outside speaker, someone that can encourage them and challenge them a little bit. And we've 
heard about your testimony and your life and you've been serving the Lord these many years. You have a wonderful family and we just thought if you'd be willing, we'd love to have you come and speak to our ladies. He gave her the dates. It was starting on March the 21st of that spring and going through the 23rd, I believe it was. And he told her where it would be. And she said, well, I'll, I'll have to ask my, my pastor if I can do that. I, I don't do that much. I, I'm not really very good at that. But, but if, if, if God put it on your heart, I'll, I'll pray about it. I'll think about it. I'll ask pastor if I can do it. And, 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 and so they left it there. She began to pray and asked her pastor if he would allow. And he said, you ought to. And so she took that engagement. When that time came, she made her way over to Arizona and up into the mountains. And that night, March 21st of that year, she stood before a small group of ladies in one church and shared what God had placed upon her heart about what it is to be the right kind of a mom and wife and Christian. As she spoke, her mind went back those many years to Los Angeles in a meeting that she sat in, hearing some of the same things she was now saying to these ladies. And she remembered, after the service, Dr. Rice praying. And it began to burden her. And as she spoke, she thought, I wonder if there's anybody here like me. Maybe in the same boat I was in. That's listening to what I'm saying and wanting to do what I'm talking about, but... They don't have a child. And so at the end of her sermon, she said, if you're here tonight and you're not able to have a child, and she kind of told what Dr. Rice had done for her, and she said, if, if I could pray for you, I'd sure love to. Meet me by the piano. She closed the service and to her surprise, Several ladies made their way to the piano. One of those ladies was a girl named Amy. Amy had gone to Crown College, graduated, and was an elementary school teacher, major, and took a job at the Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada, teaching kindergarten at the Liberty Academy with Pastor Dave Tice. Amy had taught there a few years, an outstanding teacher, tremendous teacher. One summer, a young man came to that church as a summer intern from West Coast Baptist College. His name was Juan. And Juan came to do an internship, and after that internship, Pastor Tice hired Juan to be an assistant pastor. And Juan and Amy met. And they began to date and soon were married. And God left them there in Las Vegas for a bit and then moved them to Phoenix, to this church that now Debbie was teaching their ladies. And Juan and Amy had tried to have a child, but again, it wasn't possible. They had prayed and They'd ask God to perhaps let them adopt a baby or somehow have a family. And so now here was Amy. She made her way to the piano. And that night, Debbie 
prayed with Amy that God would perhaps open a door for them to have a child or to adopt a baby. That was March 21st. That same night, hundreds of miles away, in a little town in Arkansas, a little girl named Erin, just 15 years old, lost her purity. Oh, she didn't intend to. But she got promiscuous, as many teenagers do. And it wasn't long after that Aaron realized she was pregnant. And now confused, bitter, angry. She doesn't know the Lord. She's not a Christian. She's a sophomore in high school. She doesn't even drive a car. She has no license. And all of a sudden, she's going to be a mom. She's angry. So she made a phone call to get some information about what to do with this problem. She was told there was help, but it would cost $271. Well, Aaron didn't have $271, so she stole it. When she finally got the money to the exact dollar, she made her way by borrowing a car, had no license, but got behind the wheel of that car and drove to that clinic to abort the baby. Probably nervous, having not driven a car before, nervous about this decision. She was driving a little bit too fast and got pulled over. When the officer asked for her license and registration, there was neither. The officer said later, I probably would not have arrested her. But I really didn't have choice. Without the registration, Without a license, he had to take her in. Took her downtown. Stood before a judge. The judge said, you're going to jail, young lady. Your hearing will be in two days. I'm setting bail at $271. As Erin was led away out of that courtroom, she had a choice. She could take the $271 that she had stolen for an abortion and pay her bail and get out. Or she could sit in that cell for two days and wait for a trial. She called for a purse. She paid the $271 and was released on bail. A friend picked her up. As they were driving home, they passed by a sign that said something about women's ministries. By the grace of God, they pulled in.
Aaron went inside, and a worker there took the Bible and introduced Aaron to Jesus Christ. And Aaron was wonderfully saved. Upon getting saved, she realized that what she had inside of her was not a problem. It was not just a fetus. It was a life. A life formed by God. And with some counsel and help, she decided, I'm going to put the baby out for adoption. She got on some websites to try to find some parents. And she found Amy and Juan Zarate in Phoenix, Arizona. Christian parents. A pastor. What better life for my, my child? She called them. They flew to Arkansas. They met Aaron, flew back several times. They were there when the little girl was born. Juan and Amy got to name her Annabelle. The name means God's grace. Today, Annabelle's growing into a fine young lady. Juan and Amy continue to serve there at Desert Gateway Baptist Church in Phoenix. Erin, faithful to God in her local church, all because it goes all the way back to someone like Dr. John R. Rice, believing in the sanctity of life and marriage and the home and praying and helping someone like Debbie and Jerry Goddard. And Debbie Goddard being faithful to go and preach at a ladies' meeting and uphold life and the home and godly living and pray for the hurting. And the very night that she prayed, God had a plan in mind. And even in the stolen money and the established bail, it was God all the way through it. Why? Because somebody believed in him. And believed in the power of God to change the course of what the devil is doing. 